And this morning, I just want to share a few thoughts with you around uh, the resurrection story. In fact, there are so many different characters and, and themes and, and uh, uh, occurrences and life lessons we can glean from the resurrection story. Uh, there's the preeminent story uh, of Jesus, the Son of God, this nondescript carpenter turned rabbi who came and changed the world, there's, there's, who was central to the resurrection story. There's the story of Peter and, and, and Peter's uh, uh, denial of Jesus three times. Uh, there's also uh, Judas who would betray Jesus, his mentor, his rabbi, with whom he had walked for three and a half years. He would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the going rate for a slave. Uh, there, there's the Pharisees' lust for power and ultimately their choice of a thief and a villain to be set free in Jesus' place. The story of the resurrection is filled with life lessons and themes and characters. And, and as I started to pray and consider where to land this Sunday, uh, I just felt it would be appropriate to examine the life of one disciple who we know very little about, but he's mentioned in the final verses of John's recounting his narrative of the final moments of Jesus' life and his ultimate resurrection. And as a disciple, we know as Thomas or Didymus, which means twin. The most significant thing about this particular disciple is that he has this distinction of being the one disciple that doubted. You know, we, we have a tendency to remember people by the last mistake they made. That's human nature. And we remember Thomas, not for everything else he did as a Christ follower, but we remember him for this one fatal choice that he made at the end of his life, which was to doubt what everyone else said was true, that Jesus was alive. The, the reason Thomas's story resonates with me and I think it will resonate with you as well is because of the fact that we all deal with doubt. We doubt ourselves. We doubt what we believe about God. We doubt what we thought we knew about people. We doubt what, what, we, what we thought was once reliable and credible and trustworthy. And this Easter, I believe that God's instant message, his text to each of us this morning, is simply that the story of Easter gives hope to every doubter today. I don't know about you, but I, I have been in that place where I have doubted everything that I thought I knew. Everything that I thought I knew about myself, everything I thought I knew about God, everything I thought about, I knew about, this, this is a good one, everything I thought I knew about relationships. That's a tough one. And because of that, y'all, we, we often crucify ourselves between two thieves, regret over the past and fear of the future. And I would venture to say that most of us find ourselves suspended somewhere like Jesus was between those two thieves. And the thing we might be grappling with this morning is doubt in our hearts, in our minds about something. 
Because life has a way of interrupting our regularly scheduled programming. And so this morning, I believe that God wants to restore hope. As we quickly examine the life of Thomas, whose name was Didymus because he had a twin brother. Now, if, you, if you're like me, you're not alone this morning, City Church. Because as I said earlier, we all deal with doubt about something at different seasons of our lives. And if you're doubting something this morning, uh, I trust that God will speak to you in very profound ways, as he did to me as I was studying for this message. In fact, we do, before we look to the word, I just want to pray, and then we'll trust God to speak to our hearts as only he can. Father, we draw near to your word now with reverence and great humility. God, you knew who would be here this morning, and you know exactly what we need. Lord, this morning my heart moves with compassion for that one who is doubting something, who is doubting someone, who might be even doubting themselves. Lord, give each one hope, that joyful, confident expectation of good that comes only from you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen and amen. Doubt is simply defined as the state of being uncertain about the truth. Anybody been there? Where you've been uncertain about the truth? It means to be uncertain about reality or the nature of something. It means to consider questionable or unlikely. Doubt also means to hesitate to believe. There was a man who came to Jesus who said that, he said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It is possible for great faith and doubt to be juxtaposed side by side. That in all of our hearts and in all of our emotions, there are times when we want to believe, but there's something in the back of our minds that just says, I don't know. I want to believe that that is true but I'm just having a hard time believing that right now. Doubt is the hesitation and the reservation that most of us have about believing something, someone. And then finally, doubt means to be undecided, undecided, to vacillate between our opinions and our beliefs. And the story of the resurrection reminds us that it is possible to walk intimately with God. It is possible to have experienced God on a very personal level and still doubt what he promised. Thomas walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And Jesus promised that after three days, I will resurrect from the dead. And even though he had walked with Jesus and known Jesus intimately and personally, he still doubted. And this morning, we find hope from Thomas's story. Not just from Thomas's story, but from some notable leaders who also walked with Jesus. Has anybody ever hear of Mother Teresa? Mother Teresa? Yeah, yeah. 
uh, devoted her life to serving the underserved in Calcutta, India. Most people don't know this about Mother Teresa. But after she died, a book of letters that she had written in her her own hand was published. This is what she wrote in one of those letters. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. This is Mother Teresa. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and the pain I cannot explain. She goes on and she says, in her prayer, she says, I have such deep longing for God that I am repulsed at myself. I am empty. I have no faith, no love, no zeal. Listen to this. She continues and says, saving souls has no attraction for me. And heaven no longer holds any beauty. These are the words of Mother Teresa, who dedicated her life to saving and helping people, who is celebrated in history as one of the greatest humans who ever lived, who herself grappled with doubt and said, saving people, helping people no longer has any attraction to me. If you're in the room this morning and you've ever doubted God, yourself, your calling, your purpose, why on earth you're here, you're not alone. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, the reason we even have the Protestant church, also had doubts about God. He didn't doubt the existence of God, but he doubted the character of God. And there are many of us who find ourselves in that place where we begin to grapple, not with the fact that God exists. We believe God exists, but we grapple with his character and we ask ourselves that question. I heard what you said, preacher, that God is good. But will God be good to me? If you've ever experienced loss and you've ever experienced trauma and if you've ever experienced disappointment, maybe you found yourself in that place where Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, who gave us the Protestant church, found himself where he doubted God's character. I know you say God is love, but will he love me? I know you say your God is good, but is he good all the time like you say? And as I began to research, I started to see that even men like Spurgeon doubted God. I started to see that even Billy Graham and the young man he traveled with for all my Southern Baptist peeps. Any Southern Baptists in the house? Yeah, yeah. I thought I'd see several more hands. I guess y'all don't want to claim Southern Baptists. Is Is that what it is? You guys know that I'm originally from Liberia, West Africa, and I went to high school 
uh, 10th grade, 10th through 12th grades at a Southern Baptist boarding school, man. Probably about 70% of my missionaries, uh, 70% of the instructors at my school were Southern Baptist missionaries. In fact, uh, Grace is here. Where are all my people that I went to school with anymore? Just, I see Grace is here. She went to Rick's Institute, Southern Baptist School. And uh, there are a few more who aren't here this morning. We all went to school together. And, uh, and uh, uh, in Southern Baptist tradition, man, Billy Graham is the guy. Right? But most of us don't know about his friend, his best friend, Charles Templeton, who most people thought would be the Billy Graham of his day. He was a more profound communicator than even Billy Graham was. But somewhere in his life, he stopped believing. And Charles Templeton died an atheist. Even though at the beginning of his ministry, he attracted more people to his crusades than Billy Graham did. I think for some of us, that's a cautionary tale. That while it is true that we all will doubt something, there are moments that God will send us where he invites us to believe again. And I believe he gives each of us that invitation this morning. That no matter what you're doubting, no matter what you're grappling with, there's an opportunity this morning to believe again. So let's, let's look to the text, and then I'll be out of your way. Uh, our anchor text this morning, and if I were to choose a title for today's uh, message, it would simply be Hope for the Doubter. Our anchor text is lifted from John, the 20th chapter, beginning at verse 24. Uh, many of you follow along in your notes on you version. The instruction should be on the screen, and you can follow along there. Uh, and the text picks up in verse 24, and we have John's record of these, these moments, these few moments after Christ's resurrection. In fact, uh, this narrative is somewhere within the first week of Christ's resurrection. And the scripture says, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Meaning the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas just happened not to be there. So he didn't get to see what they saw. In verse 25, the other disciples are in their excitement are about to tell him that what Jesus told us is in fact true because we have seen the Messiah, but Thomas wasn't there. So in verse 25, the scripture says, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See, I, I hear everything you're saying, but unless I, unless I see him for myself, I just can't get past these guys. The word that I was fixated on in that passage was the word unless. Because we have our doubts. It's usually one of the words that we utter first. And what unless denotes 
is that life, if I'm going to believe again, is going to happen on my terms. I hear what you're saying, but I won't be dragged down this road again to believe something or believe in someone who's going to disappoint me. So unless it happens like this, I'm not going to believe. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in a place where we no longer believe because of that one word, unless. Who have you said those words to? What have you made decisions about in your own heart and mind and said, unless I can touch it and feel it and control it, I'm not going to go there again with my heart. You know the, the old age, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And we find Thomas now in the place where I'm not going to go there anymore with my heart. Listen to, what, listen to what Thomas has to deal with. Thomas is one of the men, one of the multitudes, one of the thousands who saw Jesus on the cross. He saw his broken, bloodied body. He saw Jesus bleeding. He saw Jesus give up the ghost. And in that moment, based on what he saw, Thomas is now dealing with the reality of unmet expectations. And in that moment, he forgot everything that Jesus had said. That is going to happen this way, but three days later, I'm coming back. The, 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 the problem with the word unless is often found in the things we choose to forget. Y'all missed that. The things we choose to forget. Thomas saw Jesus die, but he forgot that Jesus said, I will rise again. And when we begin to doubt, it's usually because we have forgotten the very things that we need to hold on to in order to believe again. Unless! We say to ourselves, from this day forward, we go to self-preservation mode. From this day forward, life will only happen on my terms. And we say, I'm not going to put myself out there like that never again and believe what I used to believe. That's what happened to Charles Templeton, Billy Graham's friend, who died an atheist even though he had seen hundreds Thousands of people come to faith in Christ through his ministry. Can I encourage you this morning? If you find yourself in that place where you're saying unless, if you're someone who's given to making ultimatums, maybe you should reconsider that and go back to the things that you once believed. Uh, this, the scripture goes on and he says, I, I, I'm not, not, not going to believe, I'm not going to believe this. And, and, and look at verse 26. I love verse 26 because it says, after eight days, Jesus' disciples were again inside. How many of you know that God always gives us a do-over? My mom always says it this way. I'm so glad that God is not just the God of the second chance. 
Because all of us would have been disqualified if we only got a second chance, y'all. And she says, our God is a God of the second chance over and over and over because God has no three strikes and you're out rule. It wasn't a proposition where Jesus says, well, I showed up to the disciples and Thomas, shame on you. You weren't there. Eight days later, y'all, Jesus comes again. Can I encourage you? And let you know that if it feels like you missed Jesus the first time, if it feels like Jesus showed up for everybody else and you weren't there, let me encourage you. Maybe your eight days are coming. When Jesus will show up just for you. Just for you. He didn't have to appear a second time to the disciples to convince them. They were already convinced. Jesus showed up a second time for the doubter. And can I just encourage you that if you find yourself in a place where you've stopped believing or you're having difficulty believing, stay connected to people who do believe. Notice Peter was with the disciples when Jesus came the second time. I mean, when Thomas, when Thomas was with the disciples when Jesus came the second time. This is what we do. When we stop believing, we retreat and we isolate. Because I don't believe like they believe. And we retreat. Thomas, even in his doubting, stayed around people who had seen Jesus. And let me say this also to those of us who are believers. Don't get down on the people who don't believe like you do. Make room for them to not believe while you believe and let Jesus reveal himself to them. The lesson we learned from verse 26 is simply this. You can belong before you believe. My wife said, say that again, and I will. Fellas, y'all know this, right? She's a boss. Mama said, knock you out. Let me get back. Verse 26. You can belong. If you're here this morning and you're a doubter, you're a skeptic, you don't get this whole Jesus thing. You can belong before you believe. And so for those of us who are doubters, and for those who find ourselves connected to doubters, Lesson number one is we can reach out with our hand relationally. If there's somebody who is doubting, or maybe if you're doubting, don't isolate. Surround yourself with people who believe. And over time, Jesus will show up just for you. I had the privilege of serving in the United States Army. And when I went through basic training at Fort Jackson, I met this guy named Shane Sweck. Shane was from Nantucket, man. He was from East Coast, Massachusetts. He was like a real life, he was my real life personal Mark Wahlberg, (laughs) y'all. He talked just like Mark Wahlberg, man. And we went through basic training together. And when everybody got their orders to go to AIT, which is advanced individual training, Shane and I were the only two guys who got uh, orders to go to Fort Lee, Virginia. And then we went from Fort Lee, Virginia, only two people in our platoon for whatever reason, for whatever reason, 
Only two people who got orders to go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 101st Airborne Division, home of the air assault. Who, what? Oh, man, I'm getting my twitch again. Feel like major pain. It's been a full two weeks since I killed me a man. Oh, oh, he's risen. My wife said, my wife said, come back into the light. You want me to show you a little something? Take your mind off that. Wusai, <laughs> Wusai. Okay. Shane Sweck. Shane Sweck. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for bringing me back home, baby. Okay, so Shane, Shane, Shane. So, so eight weeks of basic training, uh, 13 weeks of AIT. So Shane and I, man, were joined at the hip. 13 weeks, we land at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Not only do we land at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, man, uh, we're assigned to the same unit. Charlie Company, 8th of the 101st Aviation Regiment. Still remember that. Only two. The difference is, I was a Christ follower. Shane was an atheist. And for some reason... From basic training all the way to Fort Campbell, we're joined at the hip. He knew I was a Christian, and I knew he was an atheist. But I loved Shane. And when there were opportunities, I shared my faith. Never treated him differently, because I understood you can belong long before you believe. How are you handling the doubters in your life? So, so, Shane, so Shane comes to my, my room one day, knocks on the door, and he's got tears in his eye. This is Mark Wahlberg, right? He's diesel, you know, you know, yeah. And, and, and he's got tears in his eyes, right? And, and, and he says, uh, hey, man, I need to talk. I said, what's going on, man? He says, I'm flying home. Uh, because my mom and dad are getting a divorce. And he was devastated. Because his dad was his hero. And he loved his mom. And he said, my mom just called me. And she couldn't stop crying. I want you to pray for me. How many realize that there are no atheists in the trenches? And that God will show up on the eighth day. Not in your timing. But he shows up on the eighth day to reveal himself to every doubter. Because you can belong before you believe. So Shane goes home. And uh, he's gone for several days and he comes back. And I see Shane and he looks like a different man. I mean, his countenance. I'll be totally different. Because Shane was a hard guy, man, and he partied hard. And, 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 but when he, he came back, he looked like a new person. And he said, Ray, the second night I was home, he said, I was lying in my bed. And I cried out to God. And this is what he said, his words. If this God that Ray has been telling me about is real, then reveal yourself to me. And this is what Shane said. He said, I didn't see anything. But he said, something filled my room. He said, I didn't hear a voice. 
I didn't hear nobody talking to me. But he said in a matter of moments, God made himself real to me. And so I prayed with him again, and I just simply led him in the prayer of salvation, even though God was real to him. I prayed the prayer of salvation with him from Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Shane went from being a doubter to being a believer. But Shane used to work out with a guy named Dave Mays. And Dave Mays saw the transformation in Shane. And Shane led Dave to Christ. Dave's roommate, and I'm giving y'all names so y'all know I'm, I'm not prophesying. This is a testimony, not a testimony. They all on Facebook. Shane Sweat, you can send up DMs to verify. Shane Sweat, David Mays. In fact, David reached out to me on Twitter uh, uh, probably about two years ago and, uh, and uh, had been on the cover of fitness magazines the whole nine yards. Dave Mays has a roommate named Jake Taylor. Uh, and Dave leads... Jake to Christ. All because of Shane, who was a doubter. The way we deal with doubters and the way we deal with our doubt is maybe God changes our hearts and our minds, first of all, relationally. The disciples made room for Thomas to doubt. They did. Eight days he's with them. They're the ones who believed. He doubted. They made room for Thomas to doubt. Don't put pressure on people. Don't be the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Number two, they didn't abandon him in judgment. They surrounded him with faith and love. And if you're doubting this morning, those are the kind of people you need in your life. Whatever you're doubting. Maybe you're not doubting Jesus, but there are other things you might be doubting. Surround people who who won't abandon you in judgment, but who will surround you with faith and love. Number two, uh, reach out with your heart emotionally. Are y'all with me? Reach out with your heart emotionally. Be relational, but engage your heart, not just your hand. Notice when Jesus shows up, I love this, verse 26. Jesus came. The door's being shut. He had a dramatic entrance, y'all. All All the doors are shut. Jesus just popped up. What's that? What's the dude from, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, uh, 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 I just had a, a, Mr. Deeds, the the, the waiter guy. What's his name? The butler. The butler, the butler. What's his name? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Y'all don't know? Okay, go rent Mr. Deeds. You'll know what I'm talking about. Jesus just popped up. All the doors are shut, man. Jesus just popped up. And notice the first thing that he deals with. First thing he says is peace be with you. Jesus understands that for some of us, our struggle with faith and our doubt has less to do with logic and more to do with where we are emotionally. He deals with our wounds that have less to do with our intellect and more to do with our personal, emotional disappointments. So this is why I said in my notes, I said, uh, doubt can be empirical, but it is also emotional. 
because Jesus spoke first and foremost to the source, the source of Thomas's anxiety. And when you encounter someone doubting or even in your moments of doubt, listen for the words of Jesus when he says, peace unto you. Finally, there are those of us who aren't only grappling with doubt emotionally, but then there's some of us who are grappling with doubt empirically. And there are solutions there as well. So we need to learn how to reach out with our mind rationally. Rationally. Notice what Jesus says. He says, then he said to Thomas, first he deals with where he is emotionally, and then he deals with his need for evidence. And he says, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hand, reach your hand here and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. I'm shifting gears now as I close to those of us who doubt when it comes to our faith and what we believe about Jesus. One of the biggest arguments I hear from people who are seekers or unchurched is, man, I'm having a hard time believing this you know, whole thing, especially, especially since it was written several years after Jesus died. I mean, how can I trust that? You're asking me to believe that someone died and actually reanimated and came back to life. In fact, when my wife was telling my nail tech, my nail tech. I'm not my nail tech, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Pump the brakes. I do not have a nail tech. I do not have a nail tech, my bad. No, that wasn't me. It was not me. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. It's not my nail tech. You want crypto gel? You want crypto gel? I have a mosquito over on my head. Okay. You want crypto gel? It look good on you. You have boyfriend? I've been to the nail shop a time or two. Excuse me. Water baptism on the front row right here. Uh, one more time for the record. It was not my nail tech. What was I talking about? Okay, yeah, so Wendy is telling about her, her, her nail tech about, about Jesus and the cross and everything. And, uh, she tells her the whole thing, and this is what she said. She said, that's weird. This is someone who believes that they're going to come back four times through reincarnation, and they may come as a grasshopper one time. And, uh, no, 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 I'm just saying. But there are doubters. And we're asking people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The truth is, um, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Any history buffs? Any history people like this? History, history, history? Yeah. Anybody know Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great? Yeah. He was a bad dude, 32 years old, man. Conquered the world, y'all. In fact, there's a great moment in Die Hard. I need to let y'all go, but I'm just having these flashbacks. But in Die Hard, what's the villain's name with the, the, the whatever? And he says, uh, he says, um, Alexander wept when he looked over the populace and realized there were no more worlds left to conquer. <laughs> that was good. I, I got y'all. That, that was my Oscar moment right there. Oh, y'all like, stop breathing. Y'all stop breathing in that moment. 
That was powerful. That was good. That was good. That was good. It says, Alexander wept when he looked at the populace and realized there were no more worlds left to conquer. He cried because there was nobody else to, to conquer. That was Alexander the Great's mindset and his greatness died at 32 years old. We believe what we believe about Alexander the Great because we were taught that in our classrooms, in history class, in universities. What we don't know and don't realize is that the earliest written records of Alexander the Great's life are from 400 years after he died. There are no existing written records of Alexander the Great's life from people who walked with him and served him. Not one that has been found anywhere. The only records that we have are 400 years old. Yet we believe everything that they wrote. And if we were to examine, let me just, if this was, if this marked the time, the point in time at which Alexander the Great died, and I were to represent each generation by one step, it would look something like, because a generation typically is measured by about 40 years. And, uh, and so if this is Alexander the Great's death, and we're measuring the timeline of the earliest written records of what we now believe about Alexander, it would look something like this. It'd be like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have to shorten my steps, but it would be all the way out here. Alexander the Great died there, and what we believe about Alexander the Great is 400 years removed from when he actually walked the face of the earth. Jesus dies, and everything we know about Jesus is recorded in that first generation. If I were to tell you what Jesus, what's written about Jesus and what that looked like, if this represents the moment in history when Jesus died, and everything we read and know about Jesus, it would look just like this. Now, uh, for those of you who are history buffs, you know that you have to have at least two credible written sources for something to be verified. Two, just two, a minimum of two written sources who walked and lived in that time for it to be considered verifiable or credible. Now listen, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and I close here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 two through 7. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas. That's another name for Peter. So the first account is of Peter. And then by the 12, not just one source, but now it's 13 sources verifying that Jesus is alive. Verse 6 says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So we're up to 513. Of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He said he appeared to 500. Some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive. And you can talk to them and they'll tell you the same guy that was hanging on the cross dead. We saw him face to face. And after that, he was seen by James. We're up to 514 living sources who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus. 
and then by all the apostles. There are at least 514 named sources who can verify that the resurrection occurred. Then Paul says, then last of all, he was seen by me also. We don't only reach out to people relationally. We don't only reach out to them emotionally. But we can have conversations about Jesus rationally. Never feel like you have to explain in order to believe. There are generations of researchers who have devoted millions of dollars trying to explain why the bumblebee flies. And I really think God has a sense of humor. For those of us who think we're so smart that we can explain God away, he says, let me give them this little tiny bumblebee and let them have at it. And after millions of dollars and decades of research, the smartest people in the room still can't figure out how this tiny little bee flies. Yet we have the audacity to explain God away. Because the problem sometimes is we want to explain it before we can believe it. But there's not one of us in this room, even though we can explain how the bumblebee flies, who would agree that the bumblebee does fly. So this morning, I believe God's word to you. Regardless of what you might be doubting, you may not be doubting the resurrection, but you may be doubting something else. His words to us is simply this. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Because once upon a time you believed. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that this word would resonate.